friend, Doug Pratt, speaking to you from the Life Academy at First Church of Benita Springs. Usually we talk to you in our various episodes about items of practical concern or spiritual implications and focus on life. But today we're going to be looking at a little bit of our history of our nation's past. We're going to be visiting two men whom I believe can be properly called the first American heroes. These are men who most of us do not know much about, but we should. We should because we stand on their shoulders and because they were true heroes and true role models for us. Unfortunately, the concept of a hero or a role model has become cheapened today so that many young people are growing up idolizing and having as their heroes athletes, entertainers, even comic book superheroes who are not real human beings and who are not worthy of that kind of emulation. What we need for heroes are real people who have faced real challenges and real difficult times in life and have shown us the way to live. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. In our history, we certainly have a number of great heroes whom we revere, including many around the time when our nation was founded and birthed by a rebellion from the mother country. And we know those names, and we know their stories very well. Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Franklin and Hamilton, they're so well known that we put their faces on our money, and we built monuments to them, and we named public buildings and even cities and states for them, and they are deeply revered. And it is remarkable how providentially a cluster of courageous, brilliant leaders came together at just that critical time. But there was another cluster of great, courageous people a century and a half before the American Revolution. And had it not been for them, the events of 1776 likely would not have happened. It is 400 years ago exactly this month of November 2020, when we look back to the arrival on the shores of North America in 1620 of that group of people who began a new venture in freedom on our continent. And because of what they did, we should revere them as our first American heroes. I'm going to be talking to you today a little bit about William Bradford and John Winthrop. And I hope you're going to learn some things. So let's visit these men. And first we need to understand that they are creatures and products of their times, as we all are. Every one of us is impacted by our own culture. And they were not perfect men and had certain things that we might today look back and say, hmm, that's not exactly the way we would do it. But so is the case with our own generation. Future generations will probably look back at us and say, why did they do that? What was wrong with them? What were they thinking? And so these people we're going to be looking at in their cultural context and their times. The times in which the American continent was born were a time of great turbulence after about a hundred years of great upheaval across the continent of Europe, where after centuries of power and control by the dual institutions of the civil states and the Roman Catholic Church, 
a movement launched by Martin Luther, furthered by John Calvin, John Knox, and other great reformers, triggered not only a spiritual renewal, but also a tremendous change in the concept of the power of the people and of governmental institutions. It was a time of tremendous upheaval. In England, the monarch, King Henry VIII, seeing the breakdown of the absolute power of the bureaucracy headquartered in Rome, seized that opportunity to break away with the English church from Roman Catholic control. He did so, however, for personal reasons, not for theological ones. But there were people under Henry VIII who had become convinced and dedicated Protestants and who took advantage of the king's break from the Pope to begin a real movement of reformation in the Church of England or Anglican Church. It was a couple decades later when Henry's daughter Elizabeth ascended the throne. And Elizabeth was all about power and control. And she was content with the church having reformed to the place where it was when she came to power and she stopped any further efforts at reform. A group of people within the English church who came to be known as Puritans because it was their desire to continue the work of the purifying or reforming of the church became pariahs in the minds of Elizabeth and her bureaucracy and the Puritans longed to be able to keep on growing the church back towards its spiritual roots. Now, as we look at them today, the Puritans at times focused on some things that we might consider to have been less than essential. They became very uh, angry about the formal clothing and all the trappings that felt very Catholic to the Puritans that Elizabeth and the Archbishop of Canterbury insisted on retaining, and therefore they were dissatisfied. And they even became known as separatists because they did not want to cooperate with the way church was enforced and was being done in England. Now, as we look back, we can see that had Elizabeth and her bureaucracy simply adopted a more tolerant, big tent approach, the Puritans could have been kept within the national church and given latitude. But power tends to corrupt, and people who get control tend to want to exert absolute control. We've seen that in the year 2020 with some of our governors of various states who have attempted to control and lock down and dictate even the smallest details of the lives of people, and that's exactly what happened with the bureaucracy under Queen Elizabeth and her successor, where the Puritans were horrifically persecuted. The Puritans were essentially evangelical Christians, as we would know them today, very committed to the scriptures and to a life of faith in Christ and growing towards holiness and personal purity. But uh, they were as persecuted and as mistreated as some of the worst examples of the persecution of the early church under the Roman emperors. Pastors were removed from pulpits for daring to proclaim something not uh, considered appropriate by the crown. They were imprisoned. Some of them were killed. And many other believers went underground the way 
churches today do in Saudi Arabia or Iran or North Korea, having to meet in secret and be very careful. Other Puritans decided to go into self-imposed exile. A group of them traveled to Holland and established in a city called Leiden in Holland, a church and a new life. Holland was safe because it was a reformed country. It had broken the control of the Roman Catholic Church. But these English Puritans, though they were able to worship freely, nevertheless felt like they were outsiders. They didn't know the language. They didn't fit into the culture. And so even though they had found a temporary safe place across the North Sea in the Netherlands, they longed to have a place of their own. It was in 1620 that working with a well-connected broker back in England, they were able to arrange permission from the crown to establish a small colony on the northern coast of North America. And they contracted to rent a ship for the passage called Mayflower. They traveled from Leiden in Holland to the uh, British port city, uh, and then they boarded the Mayflower. And after a two-month brutal trip across the Atlantic, they arrived in November of 1620. They founded the Plymouth Colony, which barely survived its first year, but managed to hold on. And as new residents came to join them, the colony ultimately prospered. News of this new successful life in North America began to circulate among other Puritans scattered and underground in their churches in England, and more and more decided to take that great step. And thus began the movement in subsequent, subsequent years that produced New England and a whole new type of life on the North American continent. It was a tremendous risk-reward decision those brave people made. The risk was that they would not survive in a difficult wilderness or the long sea voyage. The reward was they could build a new community that fit with their own beliefs. So that's the background. Now, let me tell you a little bit about first William Bradford and then John Winthrop. Bradford was uh, born into a lower class family and his parents died before he was a teenager and he had to make it on his own. He worked for his uncle in farming and in trades and crafts, uh, learned to be a handyman, had to be self-educated, would stay up at night reading by candlelight. He became a committed Christian, became involved in a Puritan church, a small underground church in the town of Scrooby in the central uh, area of England. And it was those committed Christians who decided to move to Holland. Bradford, seeing them as his only family, went along as a teenager and took up that new life. And then when that church decided to make the very dangerous choice to cross the Atlantic to the New World, Bradford, by now in his early 20s and just married, decided that he and his wife would make the trip. After two difficult months in a crowded passage that was nothing like a modern cruise ship, uh, it was a really tough voyage. But as they arrived in New England, and as they searched for a place that would be appropriate to land and to begin their settlement, they made a historic decision 
On board the Mayflower, they enacted what came to be known as the Mayflower Compact, in which every single one of them, a little bit less than 100 men and women and children, committed themselves to being a self-governing, mutual benefit community, following the commands of God and the principles of the scriptures. This was a remarkable development. Nothing like it had been, been seen in Europe. Every government across that continent had been imposed from above by a king or an emperor. But now, in a new virgin continent, people formed their own government. It was the first real constitution, and it had a profound effect. Now, before they landed at Plymouth and began their life together, they elected one of the older men of their company named John Carver to be their governor. A couple remarkable things, providential we believe, happened to make the place where they chose to live the perfect spot, in spite of the hardships and difficulties. They found that there was a Native American there by the name of Squanto, who spoke English. What were the odds of that? Who had been in London for a couple years and was the ideal translator to build a relationship with the neighboring North American uh, native tribes. And their chief, Massasoit, was influenced by Squanto to treat these new English arrivals not as a threat, but to form a relationship with them and even help them and instruct them in agriculture and fishing and hunting appropriate to that area. Another remarkable coincidence, you might say, is that a devastating plague, sort of a super coronavirus, had spread through the whole area around Plymouth and the majority of the Native Americans had passed away from it. Thus, as the English arrived, they discovered that there were fields already prepared, removed of trees, fallow, ready to be planted. It was the ideal place to begin their new life. And then John Carver, less than a year after their landing on Plymouth Rock, died. And the community turned to young William Bradford to be their governor. What a huge responsibility for this young man. But he undertook it with great faith and dependence upon the Lord. Here's what Bradford was like, by all accounts. He was a man of deep prayer who would regularly, every morning, get up before dawn and pray for his people and seek the Lord's guidance. Because he was self-educated, he didn't have any background in government or in law to know how to establish the guidelines and the directives that would govern that community, and yet he knew his Bible. And so the rules he established were based upon Scripture and upon a godly way of life. Bradford was remarkably skilled at dealing with people and bringing them together. He was a gifted leader. He was able to work cross-culturally with people from the Indian tribes and from, with different people, different personalities, including new arrivals to his community. Bradford was able to serve effectively for 27 years as the governor of Plymouth Colony. And one of his brilliant decisions was to establish the colony on the basis of private property ownership rather than collective ownership thus saving America from socialism 
because he recognized that people would be more motivated to work hard if they could enjoy the fruit of their labors. Bradford was a man who was humble and did not advance his own goals or his own profit or his own ends. He was able to accept other people, including the pastors who came to lead their churches in the coming years, without a sense of threat, but openly shared in leadership. He was a humble man. He was a courageous man. He was a man who, by his skill and by his calm, even in the most difficult circumstances, was able to keep people together. Frankly, many historians believe that had it not been for the skill of William Bradford, that Plymouth colony may not have survived. Well, let me tell you then about the other of the first American heroes. His name was John Winthrop. And he was about Bradford's age, but he came to North America roughly a decade later. Winthrop's background was quite a bit different than Bradford's, who was from a poor family. Winthrop was from an upper-class, land-owning nobility, had all the benefits of growing up with wealth and privilege and an outstanding education. He took a, a degree from Cambridge University, became a lawyer, moved to London, and due to his family's contacts, became uh, a position to, in government, then he became a judge for a while. But uh, Winthrop had become a committed Christian and secretly was devoted to a group of Puritans. And he became dissatisfied with the corruption in the legal system and the political system of London. And so he and others of his community of Puritans began to long to start their own community. And they heard about New England. And so, using their contacts with the crown, they were able to gain permission to plant a new colony on a large swath of the New England coastline that would become known as the Massachusetts Bay Colony, just north of Plymouth. And the uh, choice to go there resulted in the selection of Winthrop to be their governor before they even left. He had written a powerful book, a powerful vision, you might call it, of what this new community could be like. It was called A Model for Christian Charity. And it outlined this vision that has had such an impact through our years as a nation, where America is seen as a city on a hill, taken from the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. This vision that America could be a beacon, a powerful influence upon the world, was one that was picked up by many American leaders, including notably John Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan, and their vision of what America could be for the world. Winthrop was a skilled leader. He was the governor of what became a very large colony as cities and towns were developed all around the hub city of Boston and the Charles River and Boston Harbor. And Winthrop skillfully enacted the rules and the constitution for the colony. He had the ability to understand and work with people and keep them together. He had a wise perspective on the role of the church in the society. Having been in a uh, country where the state controlled the church, he had the wisdom to enact a separation of church and state, not to keep Christians out of the government, 
but to keep the government out of the church and preserve its independence and its freedom. That and many other principles he established for Massachusetts Bay became foundational to our American government. John Winthrop is summarized by one of his biographers in these ways. Winthrop brought to his numerous tasks and responsibilities a true sense of humility and recognition of his own sinfulness. Oh, how unique uh, in a leadership to see someone uh, that humble and that willing to uh, recognize his need for his Savior. And then the biographer says, Winthrop's call for the colonists to love one another with true Christian affection came quite naturally for him. These are the two early American heroes that I hope we will know and I hope we'll emulate. They were great men. They were tough men, dealing with circumstances, with hardships, carving a life for themselves out of a barren and virgin wilderness that are just astounding for us to consider. They were men, both of them, who went through difficult times. Both of them lost their wives. One of them, in fact, Winthrop's wife, died of a plague that arrived in Massachusetts Bay from a ship coming from another country where the sailors brought with them a deadly virus and she died, but Winthrop survived. There were many uh, other qualities that made them exemplary in their leadership, their intelligence, their courage, their willingness to cast a vision for what a new nation could be. Because of them, and because of what they did, we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude that we can never repay.